thank you guys for reading. Thank you, Brian, for praying. I am not afraid of you. So there we go. Let's start right there. Although I am, as I confessed last week, I want to impress. And this is one of those passages. So Brian, again, I really do appreciate the the heart behind that prayer. This is uh, is a a scene in Andy Griffith that uh, we've we've always enjoyed when we think about uh, come down and, you know, or if one of the kids is asking, oh, what's the sermon about this week? It's a moment where uh, where everybody's kind of coming out of church and, you know, Barney looks at the preacher and says, I never hear too much about sin, preacher. And he's like, the sermon wasn't about sin. He was, because he was sleeping during the whole thing, I guess. But this is one of those sermons where Barney got it right. Here we are, a sermon about sin with, oddly enough, what you might consider to be almost one of Jesus' grossest parables. It's his middle school one. It gets to topics that feel, before he starts to explain them, as though he's talking about something kind of disgusting. And I'm not sure if that's obvious to you from the the initial reading of it. But before we we dive in, I just want to ask, because I think this this is a question that we should be thinking about not just with the freedoms that we have, and like Brian said, the potential erosion it feels, at least if not in the laws, at least in the culture kind of around us. But what would you consider to be the greatest threat to the church today? There's a lot of different folks with a lot of different answers and vibes, right? Well, if I let that sit over you and you just had to kind of answer that, you might go with something like the moral decline of our country kind of around us. Or maybe you'd even look and say the moral condition of the church in some ways. You might look and say that it's the political divide that our country is clearly experiencing and the way that that is like trickling down into the church. You may look and listen to other people, even in our congregation, and think about their ideological sort of naivete. You may think that they're pulling for things that you would just experience as being just really not helpful. You might think of uh, COVID or the COVID overreach, depending on how you interpreted these last few years. Uh, You can think of racial divides. There's a a number of ways you probably, and I'm not sure if I've hit on the different ones that immediately came to mind, but if we thought about the greatest threat for our church, it is helpful to remember when we're reading a passage that what we have to do in reading it first is to try and not answer that question for ourselves but to go back and ask, if Jesus were to throw that question out, what is the greatest problem or the greatest threat facing us as a people of God today? And he was talking to the Jews around him. One of the more obvious answers, or at least the answer that is getting highlighted here in Mark chapter 7, is that of impurity or uncleanness. Or the word that was used here is the word defilement. And that concept, if you remember back to what we talked about last week, we kind of started this way by way of the summary. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, right? And so they asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
If you were to ask these Pharisees and these scribes who have come from the, remember, bum, 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 Jerusalem, because Jerusalem, when it arrives in the Gospel of Mark, is never a place of peace, a place of prosperity, a place of, you know, support and friendliness. It is always going to be opposition to Jesus' message. That's just the way it feels. So that by the time Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, we know there's a sense of foreboding that's been building up to that moment. And this is one of those. This is one of those markers that's saying Jerusalem's going to be a place of hostility for Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who would answer the question, what's the greatest threat to the people of God? They would say it is this defiled sense that is spreading among the people of God and the fact that it could then trickle back and affect me. So Jesus you're popular, but your disciples don't do what the elders have said, washing their hands. Not again for hygiene, but for a sense of their moral superiority, their moral purity. Why are you not doing that? Why are you allowing this defilement? That's the problem, right? And so we had last week, right, the, the, the whole nature of Jesus' uh, interactions there. But then we, we come to verse 14, which is where our passage begins, and you realize Jesus isn't letting up the question of defilement, is he? So he gives the middle school parable. He called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him that defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You got your basic biology going on? You understand the digestive tract? What makes you unclean? Is it the food you eat? Nope. It's what your body does with the food before you get rid of it. You can either vomit it up or you can get rid of it the other way, but both of those are gross. Both of them fit the middle school psyche, right? If we were, had a crowd of like 6th, 7th, and 8th graders all around, trust me, I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th graders for 10 years, and I can tell you that when these topics come up, there's a little bit of, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's what Jesus is putting out there. He's got this kind of gross illustration he wants us to think of. What's the stuff that messes with your sense of purity before God? Is it the food you eat or is it what you do with it? He's clearly making the point. We have this problem with defilement. Now, again, just even though we've had some context to it, let me just give you a little bit more that just kind of is why this is so significant. Leviticus 11, Numbers 35. Listen to these two texts. These are from the Old Testament. These are a little bit of our background. He says, You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. What's Leviticus 11 talking about? It's not talking about hanging out with these swarming things. It's talking about eating them. The law in Leviticus 11 says these things are detestable. If you eat them, you will then be defiled. Now, that's not the only way to be defiled, but it is one of the main ways of the Old Testament law that you could bring defilement into the Old Testament community was by eating something that would be forbidden and swarming things that are, that are here is one of them. Now, Numbers 35, though, gives another entirely different way of being able to defile a community. If anyone kills a person, then the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witness says. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. 
And if you had done that, if you just kind of read along, it says the same kind of language. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for this blood pollutes the land. And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So for a second, let's be sympathetic to the Pharisees, just for a brief second. And understand the background that they're kind of coming from. These are people that know that every time the Israelites got kicked out of the land, it was because they had defiled the land with idolatry. They had broken God's law. God's prophets came and warned and said, this is the land God gave you. If you want to stay here, if you want to be strong, if you want to be prosperous, if you want to enjoy life in the land, you have to obey God. These are like Moses' final words before he goes and hands everything over to Joshua. Real simple. I put before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Now, if you want death, and curses, disobey God. If you want life and blessing, obey God. That simple. In fact, everything around me is testifying that they've heard you. You hear me? The mountains are hearing me. Everybody's clear on this one, right? And the Pharisees, now hundreds of years later, are like, we got you, brother. We get it. So if we're trying to kind of root for the Pharisees, I think you'd have to just kind of get this sense. If you ask them, what's the greatest threat that we're facing today? They wouldn't necessarily go to the Romans. They wouldn't necessarily go to the cycle of oppression over the people and say it's all the enemies. They would say it's the fact that God's people have invited in the enemies by their disobedience, by their impurity, their uncleanness, and their defilement, not just of the people, but of the land in which God wants to take up residence among his people. We lost Eden, folks. Let's get it back. Now, can't you kind of root for him a little bit? They, they want something good for the people of God. They want God's presence, and they know they have to be pure in order to have God's presence with them. So that's kind of what they're pulling for. Now, Let's now intersect that with something that just happened a little bit ago. Because you can get defiled by what you eat. You can get defiled by how you live. You can also get defiled by how, what you touch. So if you touch a dead body, probably one where the blood's been spilled out, you're unclean. And as people go through their kind of natural processes of life where their fluids come out, well then... They become unclean, and people who touch them become unclean. Do you remember the woman who had been bleeding for so long, just a couple chapters ago? This is her big problem. It's not just the biological difficulty, which is significant. It's the fact that because of that, she's shunned from the community because she's unclean, and so nobody else can touch her and be unclean. Problem. She touches Jesus. Why isn't he unclean? Listen to the passage. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, this is Leviticus 15, she shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity, and whoever touches these things shall be unclean. Pharisees, in the crowd, at that moment, this woman touches Jesus. What should have happened? Jesus should have left, said, sorry guys, I just got tagged. I'm out of the game for a little while. I got to go sit until I can be clean again. And then I can come back and be around you people. Except for this isn't just the way the passage ends. 
passage then continues and says, but if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that, she shall be clean. In other words, the law doesn't just declare people unclean, it provides a way to become clean. And how does that intersect with what just happened already in Mark? The woman touched Jesus, and she's clean. There's something fundamentally different about Jesus, isn't there? It's not as though when he encounters those that are broken that he breaks. It's not as though when he encounters those that are sinful that he is now sinning because of his derivative association from them. It's not as though when he encounters the unclean, he becomes unclean. It's that when the unclean encounter the clean, they become clean. This is totally different than the Old Testament mindset. And it's what Mark has been reversing for us for a while. The old system was a matter of figuring out how you become tainted by sin and what to do about it. The new system under Jesus feels entirely different. Meet him and everything changes. That's the way it was for her. And so just one more, just so that I'm not trying to get you to root for these Pharisees in a way that doesn't have a little bit of kind of academic rigor behind it. Listen to this guy from a commentary that I read. Well, a guy or girl, I really don't know. We're just going to, they're just known as S in the commentary. So S. Westerholm says, we must interpret the gospel's presentation of cleanliness and defilement in the second temple period through the vision of a people submissive to God's rule and fit for his presence. Jewish adherence to laws of purity must be seen within this context. But on the other hand, in Jesus' vision of Israel's calling and responsibility, the rigorous pursuit of ritual purity has no evident place. In other words, if the Pharisees were looking around and saying, all right, guys, here we are together, but we got to figure a couple things out. Some of you are unclean, and we got to get you out of here so that we can be a clean people. If the Pharisees were trying to figure out what are all the external pollutants in life that would contaminate the people of God, Jesus enters that and says, man, I got no place for that. If there's to be no rigorous pursuit of that kind of work, well, then what does Jesus call us to? Enter in the passage that Brian and Steph just read for us. We are called to the kind of self-examination that David does in Psalm 51. We're called to the kind of internal examination that Jesus calls us to in Mark 7, where Jesus asks us to consider our problem with pollution and really then to think about this polluting in three different ways. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to revisit this text, this short text. We're going to enter back in in verse 17, and I want you to see this. The first thing that we have to understand about defilement, sin, all this kind of stuff in the community of God that's established by Jesus is this. We don't import our pollutants. First point. Listen to Jesus. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Remember, it's, it's kind of gross, and he hasn't explained it yet. He just said, it's not what you eat, it's what comes out of you. That's what makes you unclean. He said nothing more. He comes in, the disciples are like, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Is it the vomit? Is it the other stuff? What are you referring to? And Jesus, again, kind of in this, this whole system we're in right now in Mark, 
He's, he's addressing the misunderstanding that's going on. He says, are you, are you without understanding? Verse 18, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but it's, it's, a, it's a pipe that goes through him. It enters into his stomach and then is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So Jesus' words are here. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person isn't the problem? Because what goes into him goes out of him. Not a problem. Doesn't even touch his heart. The problem is what comes out of a person. Now, right in the middle of that is this weird parenthetical point that Mark makes, right? Now, if you remember back, Mark is probably not the source material for his gospel. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the twelve. He's in a companion later on, and he's probably borrowing from Peter, best we can figure out. There's no footnotes or anything in the original docs or anything that tell us this, but the best people can guess, it's Peter's voice behind this. Now, Peter, we know, later on in Acts, before this was written, has a really interesting experience. Listen to this happen in Acts. He says, in a trance, and these are Peter's words. He's recounting it to somebody else. He says, in a trance, I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles, birds of the air, and I heard a voice say to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, because of that like swarming thing that we read about, right, in Leviticus, I said, uh, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean Do not call common. Now this happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. So remember, this is Jesus speaking in Mark and then Mark interrupts the narrative about Jesus. Pop that slide back up 18 to 20 again. Got it? Okay, great. Isn't it weird that Mark kind of throws this little parenthesis in the middle of it? It's like Jesus is talking according to Mark and and. Mark just says, oh, by the way, let me tell you one quick thing. All those food laws, yeah, they're totally off the table now. Where does that come from? Why is Mark throwing this little side note in there? Because the point isn't about the food, is it? It is kind of about the food. Because if you go to that Acts narrative, what is the thing that Peter's really learning from Jesus? It's not that the voice in heaven is primarily telling Peter about food. Right after this, the Gentiles show up. The Gentiles come to Peter. They're like, hey, we had a vision of something, and we were told to come and find you, and you're going to tell us about how we can be right with God. Now, if you're a religious Jew, first century, you're thinking there are some foods that are clean and some foods that are unclean. There are some people that are clean, and there are some people that are unclean. And if these people want to become clean, they've got to be, or want to be, get right with God, they've got to become Jews first so they can be clean so God can dwell with them, right? The problem is the whole analogy or the whole vision that Peter has is really nothing but an analogy. This whole idea of the food is saying, yes, food matters because it represents something going on with people. And God's making a declaration All people can come now, meaning there are no people by virtue of just their DNA that are now unclean or can't come to God. They're not people that are outside of the, the bounds that God would put around himself. So food matters, which is why Mark's kind of thrown it in there. 
But I think there's another reason Mark throws this point in there. It's because Mark's saying, I want you to remember what's happened with people. It's not as though there are classes of people based on who their parents are that are naturally clean and classes of people based on who their parents are that are naturally unclean. It's not the way this works. It's the way you've thought. But just like food, we're making it all clean. Jesus is actually making the opposite point. All people all have to deal with their unclean hearts. Just like there's no clean and unclean food, he's declaring all of it clean. Jesus is now saying there's no clean and unclean people. And wouldn't it be great if he was saying we're all clean? But he's actually making the opposite point. Actually, we're all defiled. We've got a bigger problem here. We don't import our pollutants. We don't associate with people that are bad and then they sort of taint us and infect us. Probably the best analogy we've got for this is COVID, isn't it? If you're thinking about people through a COVID kind of you know, mindset, then man, you are missing Jesus' whole point about people here from the beginning. There are no people that can pollute you. And there are no problems outside that cause your responses. You don't import your pollutants. But guys, this is the way we totally think from the very beginning of our ability to explain why we do what we do. Johnny, why did you hit Susie? Because Susie made me angry. Johnny's problem is that Susie imported a pollutant. And guess what? Johnny and Susie can grow up for 80 years, and they still naturally think that way. This is the way we think about conflict. But Jesus' brother, James, speaks about this exact idea. Listen to the way he uses the same concept to talk about fights and quarrels. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is James chapter 4. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Why are you fighting? It's you. It's not them. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on all of your passions in the first place. We are prayerless, angry, idolatrous, and twisted. And we use all that internal energy in order to corrupt and to hurt and to harm others. And James says, why is that happening? It's not because Susie made you angry. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is just taking some of the stuff that he's heard from Jesus, probably this point here, and saying the thing that defiles us comes from us, guys. It doesn't come from them. Now, just as a sidebar, this isn't exactly where Jesus goes. But I want you to know this. If you are the victim of somebody else's sin, what that fundamentally means is good news for you. Because one of the hardest things to break out of when somebody else has sinned against you is that you deserved it. It was your fault. You did something wrong. Because we think about this old way, right? Why is it that I had this encounter with them? Why did they do this? And either because of their words or because of your own inner dialogue, you're thinking, I deserved it. I did something that caused it. Jesus, you understand, is freeing you from that mindset. If you've been sinned against in really 
harmful ways. What Jesus is saying here is it's them, not you. That's got a whole mess of other implications. But he is at least starting there by saying that horrific things done by others are the faults of the others. Now, that doesn't absolve us of all of our own stuff, all the things that we need to be responsible for, but it means that we don't cause others to sin. That's a sidebar. Where Jesus is really addressing this point, though, is to the Pharisees who think that all pollutants come from the unclean people and they need to make sure that they're not tainted. Jesus is pointing at them and saying, no, you don't import your pollutants. They're coming from inside you. So point one, we don't import them. Point two, we can't rebrand them. We can't talk about them in ways that polish them up or make them prettier. That pile of vomit, that load of excrement, I don't care what you do with it, you can't change its nature. We can't rebrand this stuff, guys. So if this is what comes out, Jesus says in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of, not the digestive tract, right? He's used that as the analogy. He's now moving to what we translate as heart. What the literal translation would have been the kidneys. If you're a lady and you think a little bit more in stereotypical ways that way and you want to use the word heart, that's great. If you're a guy or you think in a little more stereotypically masculine ways and thinking about your heart is a little bit harder, it's okay. Biblical language could just as easily be your gut. You, at the core level, that part of you that can grieve deeply, feel anger deeply, that can love deeply, that celebrate deeply, that can be disappointed deeply, that your heart, that your kidneys, that your gut. Okay, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, for from within, out of that part of man come evil thoughts, come sexual immorality, come theft, come murder, come adultery. Out of the heart comes coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Anybody absolved yet? Did you declare yourself innocent and free of every one of those in that list? Probably not. Jesus is not only being thorough, he's being specific. He's not only being thorough and specific, he's being blunt and direct to say exactly what Charles Spurgeon said when he was referring to the psalm that Steph read for us. Steph read up through verse 12. It goes on a little bit more. I've mislabeled it here on the slide. It actually goes through verse 14, what I'm about to read. But listen to what we know, right? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Why? What is David even starting with here? I was alone, I was on the roof, I looked out, I saw that woman, and I craved her. And I cared about nothing else. And so I craved her, and I took her, and I abused her, and I raped her. And in the process, impregnated her. And when I found out that I had done that, then I, I worked out the systematic death of her husband. 
And David at least knows I didn't do that because she tempted me. He knows he didn't do that because God had neglected him. In other words, he didn't do any of that because of anything other than what was coming out of his own heart. And he recognized his own heart was a dirty fountain of dirty garbage. And so he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. No, don't cast me away from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold within me a willing spirit. Deliver me from my, what a phrase, listen to this one, blood guilty the reality that I am guilty of blood. And if you're David's advisor politically, or if you're sort of his, you know, editor for the Psalms, maybe you might come in and say, oh, David, David, David. No, we all know how he died. Uriah died in battle. You didn't slaughter him. His guilt His blood isn't on your hands. You don't have anything to wash up. You're clean. Did you order the tactical strike through a really, you know, convoluted process of giving military orders? Yes. But, you know, you're not guilty. David says, no. The guilt of his blood, his blood guiltiness is mine and I need to be delivered from it. Oh God, the God of my salvation. Of that, Spurgeon says, it is pleasing to observe that David plainly names his sin. He does not speak of it as an imprudence by which an unfortunate accident occurred to a worthy man, but he calls it by its true name, blood guiltiness. He did not actually kill the husband of Bathsheba, but it was planned in David's heart that Uriah should be slain. So let us learn in confession to be honest with God. Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. It's that phrase, fair names to foul sins, that I want us to really dive into. We live in an age where the phrase, yes, mistakes were made, is so stupid and so common. Did you actually steal this money? Well, yes, you know, mistakes were made. Let's not point fingers. Who here, you know, is without blame? What? Did you do it or did you not do it? And was it a mistake or was it intentional? Did you accidentally steal? Did you accidentally kill? No. Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. Let's just, let's just explore a couple of these fair names that, you know, kind of become common, right? Think about how we feel, what we desire, what we want, how we react. We might say, hey, <laughs> I'm just being honest, right? I mean, you ever said that? Ever heard that? Hey, it's, I mean, it's, how are you and she doing? Ah, come on, it's just a little fun, you know. I mean, finders keepers, I wanted it. It just, it made me so angry. 
And Jesus just systematically just destroys every one of these tendencies we have to name our sins fairly. He says, no, to use Spurgeon's words here, let's just call the foul sin of how I feel, be being honest. No, those are evil thoughts. It's that simple. What we desire that turns into just a little fun, Jesus calls sexual immorality. What we want that we take for ourselves, Jesus calls theft. Somebody else getting so angry that we're willing to kill him, Jesus calls murder. And just in case you want to kind of get off, you know, like, come on, I haven't killed anybody. I just remember Jesus' standard, right? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, but I tell to you. You didn't sleep with her? Did you lust? You didn't kill him? Did you hate him? Jesus asks us to be honest about what's going on inside of our hearts that lead to the problems that have been just eroding society. So when was the last time that you actually honestly before the Lord said, Lord, that was me, envious and covetous? I don't know how often you think about your your death, your tombstone, your final days. It's always interesting for me in this position as pastor to be able to think about the way that Paul talks about uh, the Ephesian church that he was with and the way that he says goodbye to them. One of the phrases he uses is, I I never envied any of your financial status. I didn't covet your silver or your gold. I think, Paul, how do you do do that, man? Because if I got to be honest about my tenure... And I've been jealous of a lot of you guys sometimes. There's things that I see, freedoms or prosperity or just situations that I'm like, oh man, that looks really good. And if you and I were talking about that, you might say, well, yeah, of course, Darren. It makes sense. You know, we're all in situations where we see something a little bit better in somebody else's world than in ours. And Spurgeon would say, would you cut it out? Why don't you sit down and honestly before the Lord confess your coveting and your envy? Would we sit before the Lord and rather than just talking about, well, you know, yeah, it was a white lie. No, it's deceit and it's slander. They're not affairs. It's adultery. Born of sensuality. And how much would we have to admit that so much of our life feels like it falls into categories where we wink at wickedness or where we allow folly and pride just to to overwhelm us? Create. Recreate, oh Lord, my heart into something clean. Because Jesus, looking across the Pharisees with him and his disciples with him and explaining what's going on is saying, do you understand what really defiles you? It's what's coming out of your heart. 
And here we are, guys, 2,000 years later. I think the Spirit is using the passage to ask us the exact questions. What's the greatest threat to our country? What's the greatest threat to our church? It's that we would allow our perpetual vomit to get renamed as something palatable and okay. It's that we would let what comes out of us be named fairly when Jesus says these things are evil and immoral. We cannot rebrand what Jesus is calling something. We can't soften it. There was a moment I had to talk with one of my kids. And I was sharing a a problem that I saw in their life. It was a pattern that I had realized was there. And then later on, I heard them talking to somebody else. And I got really angry listening to the conversation. Because they were talking. And and my, my kid was saying, yeah, this is what dad shared with me. And they said, oh, it's not as bad as he says. I thought, how dare you? I know you're trying to comfort my kid. I know you're trying to help. But how dare you step in with your limited knowledge and rebrand what I'm saying is a real problem in the life of my child? Guys, I just got to say this. If the Lord, your father, is looking over your life and is saying, I want you to take care of your evil thoughts, your sexual immorality, your tendency to theft and murder and adultery, I do not want you coveting or deceiving. I do not want you wicked or sensual. I want you to stop envying, stop slandering, stop being proud and stop being foolish and I want you to hate these things like I hate them then who am I to come along and say oh guys it's not that bad grace 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 and who are you if your brother or sister comes to you and says I am having a massive problem with this to be able to just pat them on the shoulder and say oh your dad's wrong It's not that bad. The condemnation, that's that's a sermon for another day, all right? Let's shelve that one, all right? I'm not talking about you being condemned by a forgiven past. I'm talking about the question of us taking seriously or not taking seriously present sin. Like Barney said, can't get too much of sin but we can't rebrand it. And ultimately, the reason we better not rebrand it is because the third thing Jesus said just comes in the last verse. We can't downplay this pollution. He says in verse 23, summing that whole list up, all these evil things come from within and they defile. All of that comes from inside, that's what defiles. Just going back to context, they're not washing their hands the right way, Jesus. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? One, that's your rule. But two, let's talk about you. What does this look like for evil things to defile a people? Jesus gives an example in his day, right? Remember the example he says? If you say... If a man tells a father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, 
then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. That's an obscure example that Jesus gives. Remember the context. You're supposed to honor your father and mother, which in context of that day meant you're supposed to be basically their retirement program. You're supposed to be like a Social Security, like a Medicare. You're supposed to provide for them what they can't provide for themselves. They took care of you when you're little. Now you take care of them when they're old. That's the law. That's what God says it means to honor. But the Pharisees said, you can take some of your money, dedicate it to God, hold on to it, collect interest for it. But if it's dedicated to God, you don't have to give it to your parents. What is that exactly? Jesus, using the example he gives in context, says that kind of twisting, that kind of rebranding, that kind of ignoring what's really going on inside such a covetous heart, that defiles the Pharisees. So I think to use the example Jesus puts out there as sort of an example of what we need to do Guys, don't leave any stone unturned. I don't believe Jesus wants sin present in his church. And I don't think this passage leads us to look for it and to say, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, I'm not doing this. I'm just doing that. No. What Jesus attacks is defiling had the religious permission of the experts of the day. And Jesus said that was what was corrupting the people. We can't import it. We can't rebrand it. And according to Jesus, I think we can't downplay it. Listen to this, this summary from a different commentator. Apparently his name's R. Jesus took the opportunity to explain to the crowds that the true nature of contamination is not ritual, but moral. And it springs from within, not from without, as the Pharisees taught. This seems so obvious to us today that we cannot see why the disciples could not understand it. They, like most Jews of their day, thought of sin as a sort of a germ, an infection caught by contact with others outside. This was roughly the Confucian view shared by most non-Christian religions. But Jesus taught that sin was like a cancer growing within us, Jew and non-Jew alike. That is far harder to deal with, for we cannot avoid it by avoiding infection from others. It needs radical spiritual surgery that will change our inner nature. So he's saying, when, when condemnation grips my heart and Satan tempts me to despair, when I actually see a problem, what do I do? Well, reject your first impulse. First impulse is identify that the problem's outside of you and you've got to reject the cause of it. Now, there is truth in getting rid of temptation. There is truth in making sure that we have to think a certain way and if people are deceiving us, that we, we stop that. But the point Jesus is making here is that it's not the outside germs that are causing the problem. It's the inside cancerous heart that's causing the problem. And so the question is, what are we going to do about this? Here's the good news, church. It's been done. 
This isn't a new problem Jesus just somehow discovered. It was foretold in the past. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God speaking to his people. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit and I'll put it within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To use Paul's explanation of this later on, he says in in Titus chapter three, we ourselves, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I feel like the first question that I have to ask It's kind of the question that Jesus and Peter have later on. Remember when the disciples are having all their ridiculous conversation during the Last Supper? They're talking, they're going, and at one point, Peter looks down and realizes that it's not the lowest of slaves who's watching his feet, it's the highest one in the room. It is his master, Jesus. And he looks at Jesus and says, wait a second. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be washing my feet. This isn't the way this is supposed to go. And Jesus says to him, no, you don't get it. If I don't do this, you don't have any part of me. And Peter recognizing that, oh, it's not me making myself clean in order to be with you. It's that my being with you somehow makes me clean. Then, okay, wash all of me, wash all of me, do whatever you need to do. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're good. This foot washing thing is important, but you're already clean. I know most of the time, look, it's us, right? Generally, we know each other. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm talking here, but I just want to make the mis- I want to not make the mistake of making an assumption of salvation. And if you're here and you're feeling like, boy, you know, we have talked about this stuff so much. In fact, Darren, you guys, you start to make these points and I'm kind of like, all right, stop, I can make this for you. But even though you feel like you could maybe even teach it, you kind of wonder if you've actually experienced it. You wonder, where is all this stuff coming from that I say? And if you had to look back over your history, you might not be able to say that Jesus has actually cleansed you. That this ancient prophecy from Ezekiel or this later explanation from Paul describe your situation with the Lord. And I just want to say, then don't wait. Because you don't have to clean yourself to bring yourself to the bath that you need. It's the dirt that you're aware of that causes you and qualifies you, so to speak, to come to the Lord who would actually remove this fountain of wickedness and replace it with something more alive. Who could actually wash us and cleanse us because he is good and he is loving and he is kind and it's not stuff that we've done. In short, if you're not saved and forgiven, please, 
This is a Sunday afterwards. We're going to take some time. We're going to pray for folks who want to be healed, who want to be touched. Please come. And let's talk. And let's pray. Because there's nothing like the first bath, to use the analogy. But on the other hand, if you'd look back and you'd say, here's probably a more accurate situation. I think I've been saved and forgiven, but I have become so tolerant and I have become so just aware, gratefully aware right now that there are foul things that I have been overlooking because I've given them fair names. Then as the worship team comes up, what we're going to do is we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. One of the blessings of us being able to take the Lord's Supper together regularly is that we get these kinds of just sort of tangible reminders of the forgiveness that God offers to those who keep sinning. And we get to declare we don't want to live this way. We want to confess with your language what's been going on. And we want to freshly have our feet washed. We've been trudging through the garbage far too much right now. And Lord, we want you to forgive us and to wash us clean once again. So let me pray to that end. And as these guys come up to lead us, and as we move our way toward taking communion together, Let's just take a little moment to let the Spirit freshly just come and examine us. So Lord, I pray to that end as we, your people, whether at home or here, are thinking about your word and aware of our tendency, Lord, to whitewash our sin and to forget what's inside. Lord, if you're bringing to our attention, some things that have been coming out of us lately and we're aware that we freshly need to be forgiven and to redeclare our allegiance to you, then Lord, we're grateful for grace. And we pray. Lord, reveal to us what we can gladly confess so that we can be joyfully forgiven freshly. Let's just take time now with the Lord.